At 9.03 that Tuesday morning, Tanya Head's life was forever changed. United Airlines Flight 175 ripped through the South Tower of the World Trade Center, striking floors 77 through 85. On floor 78, Tanya was lifted through the air and thrown into the far marble wall, passing out from the impact. She awoke to the smell of her own skin burning and realized her back and arm were on fire. As she looked through the smoke and debris, her dead co-workers all around her, Tanya's mind was only on her fiancé, Dave, who worked in the other tower. She'd seen the flames at the North Tower and had a few minutes to count the floors from impact, trying to figure out Dave's odds of survival before Flight 175 hit her own building. A voice called out through the carnage and a man with a red bandana around his face, the famous Wells Crowther, who saved many other people that day before losing his own life, helped lead her down the tower with her arm barely hanging by her side. As they made their way down, they passed a man who was too badly injured to leave. Knowing he wasn't going to make it, he begged Tanya to deliver his wedding ring to his wife. With her own upcoming wedding in mind, she promised him she would, and as Wells and Tanya were about to make it out, she lost consciousness and awoke in a burn unit five days later to the news that Dave, Wells, and 2,975 other people had died that day. In all the horror, confusion, and trauma, survivors quickly began reaching out for one another to tell their stories, to hear the stories of others, to heal. Tanya's incredible ordeal quickly sifted to the top as a 9-11 survivor and 9-11 widow, for all intents and purposes, having been saved by a well-known hero, as well as displaying some heroism of her own with the scars to prove it. With this visibility and admiration, Tanya was soon an influential member of the World Trade Center Survivors Network and a volunteer tour guide at Ground Zero sharing her story with those that wish to remember and pay their respects to that terrible day. Welcome to The Sewing Circle, a women's history podcast. I'm your host, Peyton Alexander, and today's subject is the 9-11 survivor's advocate and serial imposter, Tanya Head. In the days and weeks following September 11, 2001, the country wanted answers. For some, like Elia Zidino, a member of the Survivors Network, she wanted to know why she had to survive, the guilt of living while so many others had not being almost too much for her to bear. The date marked a seismic shift, a definitive before and after, that even as we approach the 20th anniversary, we still can't shake. More likely than not, you remember exactly what you were doing that day. I was a seventh grader in a village surrounded by soybeans and sheep in Ohio. I'd never heard of the World Trade Center and couldn't point out Manhattan on a map. My last period of the day was science, and my teacher decided that this was a great time to describe all the ways they, whoever they were, could kill us with biological warfare. We had no concept of this either, remember. Seventh grade, soybeans, sheep. I'm sure he felt pretty vindicated during the anthrax attacks that started just a week later, 
But I'd like to point out that the person who sent those envelopes more likely than not had the same skin color as him, but that's a different episode on a different podcast. The point is that just about everyone who is alive at the time remembers the terror and uncertainty and the moment it gripped our hearts. For those directly affected, whether they'd escaped a damaged building or lost a loved one, the in-person and internet support groups provided an opportunity to make sense of what had happened and begin to heal. Online forums were a popular place to gather and say, hey, today's a bad day, I'm remembering a lot of awful stuff, and there'd be dozens of people to provide reassurance and sympathy almost immediately. When Tanya's story emerged, she instantly gained community and understanding. She began talking with Jerry Bogaz, who had escaped to the North Tower, and the two co-founded the Survivors Network in 2003. In a piece for the network's newsletter in 2004, he wrote, News of the network spread by simple word of mouth. Over 150 survivors, rescuers, relief workers, and witnesses are now registered with the network which has become affiliated with September Space, a community center that offers services to people impacted by the September 11th attacks. He went on to say, We have become active in both historical preservation efforts in Lower Manhattan and in the development of a museum to accompany the World Trade Center Memorial. We've taken part in several studies underway of the evacuation of the Trade Center, and we are exploring ways in which survivors can convey their stories in a positive way constructive manner. So Tanya quickly became involved in that mission, dedicating time, a shoulder to cry on, and money to the network. The group was tight-knit, and according to one member named Brendan in the documentary The Woman Who Wasn't There, Tanya and another member, Linda, became fast friends. Their dynamic personalities and can-do attitudes meant they were often spearheading projects together. Where one was, the other wasn't far behind, and they supported each other in the healing process. According to Linda, Tanya began a specific kind of therapy called flooding, where a therapist directed her to record her story and listen to it repeatedly to become desensitized to the anxiety-inducing situation. Linda would sit with Tanya as she listened to her story over and over and over again, reliving the horror with graphic detail daily. Tanya recounted how her assistant was decapitated on impact, the smell of burning flesh and sounds of people screaming in agony. Linda withstood as many of these sessions as she could, but over time, Tanya's details were getting incorporated into her own nightmares, telling the documentary, There wasn't almost a night I didn't have a building collapsing around me. She let Tanya know the sessions were really traumatizing her and causing her a lot of pain, so she'd have to stop. And Tanya exploded, accusing her of being unsupportive and attacking her own experience, telling Linda she could never understand because what she'd gone through was nowhere near as traumatic as what had happened to Tanya. And the level of trauma Tanya had supposedly sustained created a very insular, very protective group of people around her. No one wanted to question her when she'd occasionally refer to Dave as her husband one day and fiancé in the next. That's an easy one to ignore, just a slip of the tongue, especially since English wasn't her first language. And besides, they'd had this amazing, intimate picturesque, romantic getaway to Hawaii where they'd had a commitment ceremony. 
And that explained away why there was no marriage license. They were planning to be officially, legally married in October in front of friends and family, so there was no need to file following Hawaii. But there were other things that didn't entirely add up. Network members noticed Dave's family were never at any of the events, and neither were any of Tanya's co-workers. To that end, she loved to talk about all the romantic things she and Dave had done, the love they had for one another, but she never produced any pictures. The golden retriever named Elvis that she and Dave shared was never actually in her apartment either. When asked, she'd say he was out for a walk with the dog walker, Lupe. Elia once directly confronted Tanya about Elvis's absence, which as a dog lover, I totally get. I'd get mad too if I thought I'd get to hang out with a golden retriever at a friend's house and the dog was never there. But Tanya just shrugged it off. Of course I have a dog. He and Lupe just really love going on walks. Despite the occasional inconsistencies, Tanya's prominence in the group grew, leading to some very public, very personal appearances. More after the break. In 2006, the Crowther family held a funeral mass for Wells. His parents met privately with Tanya a few months prior, and she'd shared how Wells had saved her life at the risk of his own, putting the flames out on her back and arm and carrying her to the bottom of the World Trade Center. She'd offered them a piece of her burnt clothing from the day, but they politely refused. So moved by her story, they wanted her to speak at his funeral. She and Linda attended together. And Linda recalled in the documentary that Tanya was too nervous, nearly hyperventilating, to go to the podium and instead handed her eulogy off to Linda to read. She was more than happy to do so, as Wells was a personal hero to her. He'd saved Tanya's life, and that meant Linda's life was all the more full for it. It was a beautiful, hopeful service, and Tanya's words through Linda lent to the closure, if families ever really feel closure of the life Wells led. Time passed, and Tanya continued her work with the Survivors Network. Brendan was growing suspicious, and during one sleepless night, he hopped online to begin corroborating Tanya's story. Even as guilty as he felt for questioning her, he couldn't help but feel like there's something wrong here. He searched for her and Merrill Lynch, for her and Dave, for Dave and Marcia McLennan, the company she said he worked for, for her graduating from both Harvard and Stanford, as she'd told him. His searches came up entirely empty, save for one. Dave did indeed work for Marsha McLennan, and he had died in the North Tower. In the documentary, Brendan says he knew the day would come that he'd tell the other survivors what he'd found, but he couldn't bring himself to do so just then. The people of the network meant so much to him, and he knew Tanya could take all of them away from him in the blink of an eye. How did he know this? Well, he'd seen her manipulation in action. In one instance, a board meeting had been called, and Tanya had engineered the ousting of her co-founder, Jerry. The next day's press release named her as president of the network, which was an office that hadn't existed before. 
but it wouldn't take much longer for Brendan to be vindicated. The sixth anniversary of the attacks was approaching, and there would be a ceremony at Ground Zero. She had reached out to a documentary filmmaker named Angelo Guzlielmo to ask him to interview survivors. Tanya was also slated to lead Governor George Pataki and Mayors Michael Bloomberg and Rudy Giuliani on a tour at the ceremony and tell them her harrowing tale, and he'd be around to record that, too. The New York Times journalist David Dunlap had reached out to her, wanting to publish an inspiring story on the anniversary, but was finding it difficult to get her to answer any questions. He began calling around to other board members as Tanya had meltdown after meltdown. They're fact-checking me, she told everyone that would listen. They're harassing me. They're going to call me a liar. Her friends rallied around her, but probably not in the way she wanted. Most told her that if the New York Times published lies, she could just get Dave's parents to straighten things out, you know, provide the receipts. One board member reached out to Dunlap and asked that he back off for the time being, just to give Tanya a little breathing room between the trauma of the date and the piece he wanted to publish. So the anniversary arrives, and the documentarian gains footage of Tanya's tour, including the moment Dunlap approaches Tanya to try to get an in-person interview. As she begins to panic, her friends whisk her away. One board member encouraged Tanya to seek a lawyer, just so she'd be aware of her rights. It may have been in part to shut Tanya up, because she was calling up everybody and their brother to complain about this reporter. So the board member joined Tanya and her new attorney for the last 10 minutes of their two-hour-long meeting, and the summation the attorney made shocked her. It's all right that you're not a U.S. citizen, Tanya, and it's fine that you were only in the building for the day, and it's okay that you and Dave didn't know each other for very long. This was all news to board member Janice, who quickly began calling up the other network members. They started comparing stories and realized the truth. Tanya was a fake, and Tanya wasn't even her real name. Alicia Esteve grew up in Barcelona, the youngest of several children and the only girl. Her childhood friends recalled Alicia as spoiled and attention-seeking with an obsession for Americans. Anything she wanted, she got, including a beautiful horse and insanely expensive jewelry. As a teen, she'd claimed to have all these boyfriends— and tell other little, inconsequential lies. It appears she comes by it honestly, as her father and one of her brothers were arrested and sentenced for financial fraud. So let's do a quick recap on Tanya's version of her life. She'd been living in Manhattan with her fiancé and her dog. She was working for Merrill Lynch following graduation from Harvard and Stanford, and not only had she seen the North Tower burning, the second plane smashed right into her. The man with the red bandana made a cameo appearance in order to save her, and she awoke in a burn unit days later with a burnt-up arm and a dead fiancé. So what is the truth? The best we know is that Alicia was taking classes in Barcelona in September of 2001, and there's footage of her graduating from a school in the summer of 2002 in Barcelona. She'd never stepped foot in either of the buildings or, for that matter, a pre-9-11 Manhattan. Dave was a real victim, but of course they never met. There was no golden retriever named Elvis, a lie that really gilded the lily. Like, come on, a golden retriever named Elvis. How much more American could she have been about that? It is true 
that her arm had sustained an injury. It had been severed in a car accident years earlier and had to be reattached. So as she talked about having to wheel herself around slowly, painfully, with only one working arm, that is something she had some real experience in. But the rest? All fake. The only truly real part of her story is Wells Crowther. He'd been an equities trader on the 104th floor of the South Tower. He'd also been a volunteer firefighter and had dreamed of leaving the financial sector for the FDNY. Since childhood, he'd always had a red bandana his father gave him tucked into his back pocket. According to eyewitnesses that morning, a man with a red bandana covering his mouth and nose emerged through the smoke, organizing a rescue effort on those high-up floors. He had actually extinguished flames off of one woman's body. It just wasn't Tanya's. Wells had found the only accessible stairwell and directed survivors down it, even carrying one woman to safety before going back up to find more people, putting his training to use, and calmly helping at least 18 people escape. His body was discovered in the lobby, surrounded by the bodies of firefighters. They'd brought in a Jaws of Life-type tool to retrieve trapped victims and were on their way back up when the tower collapsed. According to experts, people found in that area had been just seconds away from safety. But they had a job to do, and they would do it to the end. There was so much unfathomable loss and incalculable grief born out of that day. Why would Tanya want to number herself among it and hurt so many people with her lies? It is true that those hours connected all of us in a powerful way, whether we were sitting in a rural Ohio classroom or running for our lives. And these stories we easily recall as though it just happened yesterday. Others grab a piece of it by engaging in conspiracy theories that center around nanothermite or the insidiousness of Dick Cheney. Watching 3,000 people die live on our television screens, it has to really mean something for every single person who witnessed it, right? Or else we have to reconcile with the dark abyss of that sunny morning and say, this happened, and for nothing. So the country busied itself with helping and donating and volunteering and going to war and gathering on the date to mourn. Also true, there were plenty of 9-11 grifters but they were motivated by money. Tanya? Her actions read as particularly grievous, at least to me, because ultimately she was a woman who just couldn't help indulging herself in emotional blood-sucking no matter the toll it ultimately take on people like Linda or the Crowthers. She hadn't actually done anything illegal in all of this, so there wasn't anything to be done. Evidently, after the unmasking, she completely fell off the radar, leading some people to believe she'd fled the country or killed herself. Shortly after the 10th anniversary, the documentarian ran into her on the street in New York. When he approached her to talk, she threatened to call the police. The last we really know is that she was fired from an insurance company in Barcelona in 2012 after they discovered her duplicity. Despite how betrayed Linda felt and the hatred she carries for Tanya, in the documentary, she says she misses her. I miss it like I miss life back on September 10th, she said. I miss the what was and what could have been. This was a hard one, y'all, and I really appreciate you taking the time with me. 
This show and my mission is to bring attention to all kinds of women. Last week, we got to just enjoy athletic excellence, and next week, we'll explore an entirely different topic. During any given Women's History Month, and let's be honest, that's when the most amount of attention is directed toward women's history, we mostly cover women who were the first of something, or the most inspirational, or the first of being the most inspirational. In these 31 days, A lot of stories fall through the cracks, and that's why I feel it's so important that women's history is featured more often than just during the month of March. The more we know, the good, the bad, and everything in between, the better it is for women's advancement in society. So thank you for listening to The Sewing Circle. You can find all my sources for today's episode on my website, sewingcirclepodcast.com. Just click listen now, where you can also hear previous episodes. You can follow me at TSC underscore pod on both Twitter and Instagram. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.